Et bedre skole-Norge. Velkommen til Et bedre skole-Norge. I dag har jeg med mig co-hosten min, Kjersti Norman, fra Elvebakken i Oslo, og vi har også fått med oss de internasjonale kjente skoleforskerne Andy Hargraves og Dennis Shirley. For å forklare det kort så er Dennis Shirley professor i pedagogik ved Lunch School of Education and Human Development ved Boston College. Han er også chefsredaktør for tidsskriftet i Journal of Educational Change. Vi har også med Andy Hargraves. Han er nok kjent for de aller fleste. Han er nå forskningsprofessor ved Lunch School of Education and Human Development ved Boston College og direktør for Chennai. Change, Engagement and Innovation in Education ved Universitetet i Ottawa i Kanada. Et bedre skole-Norge. Dennis Shirley og Andy Hargraves har akkurat kommet ut med en bok som heter Fem veier til elevengasjement. Det er den vi skal snakke om i dag. Og vi skal begynne helt på begynnelsen med hvorfor vi trenger å snakke om elevengasjement i skolen. We are talking about uh, why do we need a book about uh, student engagement? I guess it's a big problem with the students not being engaged. <laughs> yes, so it's an excellent question because we have lots of books on student engagement. So why do we need another one? The problem is because our student disengagement is so enormous and we have not been successful with the previous books in reversing some very unfortunate trends. So here in Norway, your researchers are showing a decline in student engagement over the past years, which is common for many countries now, including my own, the United States, um, Canada, others. Many countries are struggling with the issues of student engagement. So what we decided to do is to work with some educators who were committed to improving student engagement to see what their journey could tell us about um, their efforts. And uh, by working closely with them and by documenting their work, we were able to identify five paths of student engagement that we think all educators could consider in their efforts to improve student learning. And along the way to that, we found five major barriers or enemies of student engagement, some of which are perpetrated in our schools, and these are generally not addressed in books on student engagement. So what are the five paths to student engagement? Well, the five paths that we found from working with these educators in five different U.S. states are the opposite, really, of the enemies. So... What the existing books will tell you a lot is is what psychology tells you about how to engage your students uh, better. What we found by working with the educators we work with is that they often knew how to get their students engaged. They wanted to get their students engaged. Um, you know, teachers go into teaching to turn light bulbs on. They don't go in to turn light bulbs off. This is really the essence of what teaching is about. So when so many students are disengaged, we have to ask deeper questions as to, it's not just that teachers aren't trying hard enough or don't want to, there's things making it difficult for them. And the enemies of engagement are a lack of magic. So very young children have a lot of magic in their learning, in their play, in their life. And as children get older, they tend to lose that magic or the magic is stolen from them by sometimes teachers who are afraid of letting go of control when the children get bigger 
when uh, the curriculum has perhaps too much content and teachers feel they have to rush through it, when there's uh, too much testing and uh, young students just don't find testing very engaging when the curriculum gets narrower, the opportunities for innovation are fewer, you have to spend more time inside preparing for the tests rather than learning outside and so on. So, so trying to get back the magic is one of the first ways that we talk about in the book. And uh, a second, we'll sort of take turns with this between us so your listeners don't get tired of hearing me. The second would be really lack of belonging. So one thing we learned during the pandemic is uh, how teenagers were one of the most vulnerable groups everywhere because they were separated from their friends. These are people who give you your sense of identity, of importance, of being part of a community. So the sense of belonging that schools can and should provide is really important, but it, it doesn't with all students. Some students feel marginalized or bullied, for example. Students who are a bit different, a, a different race or sexuality or just a bit too thin, a bit too fat, a bit too tall, a bit too short, a bit too much in the books, a bit too arty. So one of the challenges of a schools for engagement is how do we create that sense of belonging? First of all, in a class, and then in a school, in the whole school, amongst all the students, not just this group or that group. And then what is challenging beyond that is... Um, if your school only serves one type of students, say it serves elite students, how do your students have a sense of belonging to others who are different from them, perhaps from a different social class, or a different part of Norway, or a different part of the world, for instance? And uh, what can you do, particularly using technology well, in order to connect students and enable them to understand each other across their differences. You know, Adam Smith, the economist, said uh, sympathy is the basic emotion of democracy. And getting belonging through sympathy is really important. That's a couple of the pathways. Dennis, what are some of the others? So um, Andy has just mentioned what in the book we call the danger of disenchantment. And the remedy for that is magic and creativity and the danger of disassociation. And the remedy for that is a sense of belonging. Another one of the enemies is disconnection. And the remedy for that is meaning and purpose. So disconnection occurs when students are asked to study a curriculum and they can't figure out why on earth the adults are making them do that. What's really interesting about this one is that I think that adults are often stern and are saying things like, well, you're going to need this. You know, this is going to be very important for your future. Which is true, okay? Students will need math and science and social studies for their futures. But what they miss is the opportunity to engage the student's imagination about possible futures. So how do they even imagine what their future would look like? And what would they need to prosper in that future? What would the tools be that they would need to do well? And we have to let the students know that the future is very unpredictable. 
just a few years ago, I don't think many of us were thinking about war in Ukraine or a global pandemic. We knew a bit about climate change, but we didn't know it would be so severe. But we can teach our young people that the world is an unpredictable place, and we can ask them to engage their imaginations and help a curriculum that feels remote, not particularly interesting for them, as something that's genuinely important. So that's a third one of our kind of dyad of an enemy and a, a pathway. Another one would be disempowerment or a lack of opportunity for voice and involvement in schools. And this is where democratic education is so extremely important. No child is born a natural citizen. Children have to learn how to listen to others, how to find their own opinion, how to adjudicate conflicts, manage difficulties, respect consensus, respect minority perspectives, all of those different things. And the school is the place where they should learn that. But they can't just learn it abstractly. They have to also learn it through how a classroom is run, how student government is run, how the teachers interact with them. So those are four of our distractions. Oh, sorry, now I'm into the fifth one. Well, the fifth one is indeed distraction. There you go. So, <laughs> so that was a very good segue. And um, it's in the nature of adolescence that it has a lot of distractions. Perhaps in the nature of children, there's often more interesting things to do than what it is you're being asked to do in, in the classroom. It, it may be romantic interests. It may be interests in your sports team. It may be interests in the clothes you're buying or what's online. So distraction is always there. But in the digital age, those distractions have got really more chronic. There's more of them and they're more intense. They're more easily available. They're more addictive. If you have a choice of doing something difficult or scrolling through images online, it's easier to scroll through images online. If you have a choice between thinking deeply about something while you're in school or on the bus or anywhere, it's harder to do that than it is to get out a device and look at a video on TikTok or somebody doing silly things with their cat or whatever it might be. So schools have a great challenge now of um, how we deal with things like uh, digital addiction, like uh, excess uh, screen time, like being obsessed with the images that you take of yourself and that you, you show to other people. And the opposite of that is um, how do you get focus? How do you get mastery? How do you get uh, eyes on the teacher? Really concentrate, pay attention. How do you take on something difficult that requires reading something long, not reading something short, a long-term goal, not just a, a short-term goal, something that, that might involve a bit of struggle and sacrifice that isn't just fun, fun, joy, and easy and immediate. And so one of the challenges of engaging our students at every level, including our level in higher education, is actually sometimes making things difficult for the students, setting them tasks that they might sometimes initially think are beyond them. It might be a mathematical task or a project or climbing a rock face, uh, but then providing them with the support that will enable them to accomplish something, to be a master of something that they never thought was possible for them. So not merely proficiency or competence, 
But I think in all our lives, we should all feel in our learning and as adults that there's a small number of things that we do really, really well and that we're masters of. And a mastery is one of the five big paths of engagement. When I first became a principal, I, I just thought it was for two weeks, but then it was for six months. And then I thought after a while, I, I became confident. So that's a kind of a short story. Like uh, sometimes we can do harder things than we actually think. I want to ask you a bit about um, professional capital because I'm really interested in that nowadays. And that's like the capital you got in the organization. From That's how I understood it. You got human capital, you got relational capital, and you got decision capital. And when you got those three combined, then you can make the best possible judgments. Yeah. But I'm uh, writing this assessment now and my opinion is uh, that if you got those three, mm-hmm. then you got the uh, precision of like a shotgun or something. Right. But if you combine it with the uh, involvement of the students, mm-hmm. like this is like 60% of the yeah. uh, exercise, what do you think we should add or involve them? And then you get the full precision, like the laser well, precision. That, that, that's such a good question, Owen. And the the reason it is, is that uh, in writing a book about professional capital, you you summarized it superbly, which is, if you want to get a return out of anybody, of, you know, time, effort, attention, motivation, you need to make an investment in them, investment of uh, money, investment of time, and investment of interest and, and support. So I think you captured that very, very well. And it sounds so simple. But so many systems don't do that. They they don't hire the best qualified people. Mm-hmm. They don't give them good quality professional development. Mm-hmm. And they don't know how to get them to collaborate together. So simple though it seems, lo- lots of systems don't actually do it. Yeah, and it's a way to focus. Yeah. But it doesn't describe everything about what makes quality learning and a quality classroom environment and uh, we're often asked the questions two kinds of questions really one is what does this mean for the community for how the school works with the community and of course this is also extremely important and adds a lot of value people say teachers are important but what the statistics tell you is on average teachers and schools make about 20 percent of the impact on students. 80% comes from other things outside the school. It's the home. I heard home, 40%, and friends, 40%, and schools, 20%. Is that about... So some people put their hands up then and say, well, that's a shame. We've only got the 20%. Let's do what we can with the 20%. But if you have active strategies for involving parents and the community in the school, then you begin to affect that other 80%. And as Dennis and I talk about in the book on student engagement, if you involve your students more actively in the school, in their own learning, in their own assessment, and making decisions about how the school is uh, run, in uh, participating in in mental health uh, issues in the school themselves, contributing to how to resolve those. Even in the government, in giving feedback to the government about how its policies are going, then then you can also affect that that percentage that we think is just to do with the students and nothing to do with the school, but but begin to collaborate with it. And schools can then, teachers can do a lot more than the 20% that traditionally we say they can.
I want to go back to the word magic because in Norway we have kind of had a discussion between should school be fun or should school be serious and goal oriented. And it's kind of hard to find the middle path in in that discussion. In my school, we started talking about dreams, having dreams, and and we were ridiculed because that was that had nothing to do in schools. We shouldn't be talking about dreams in schools, and nobody can live by their dreams. And we said, well, it's what you dream about because you might dream about making a change, or you might dream about you know having. A better future. You might uh, dream about uh, helping your your peers. There are different kinds of dreams, and you are so bold that you're bringing in the word magic. Mm. So, how can you say something around uh, the balance between the seriousness of school and the and the, and the uh, mastery and the magic? Well, I'm going to give a one sentence answer, and and then Dennis is going to explain what's behind the answer, but. Imagine if you applied that question to marriage and and not to school and said some people think marriage should be all about fun and some people think well marriage should be serious and purposeful which should it be and of course the answer is it should be both shouldn't it right so so if that's true for marriage and it's also true for schools what would that look like Dennis well i i think that the issue here would be an issue of how dynamic is the kind of force field with which we're discussing these topics. So if, if the kids are getting that school is serious, 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 and they really want some magic, and if we could just give them a bit more magic, they might become people who read for pleasure rather than people who only read when they're told to read and what they're told to read, then we're missing a big opportunity. Actually, it's a simple exercise. Just go to your local bookstore, and there's so many young adult books in fiction that are appealing to um, the imaginations of our students. I, I, the first book that really turned me into a lifelong reader, for, as it was for many, was reading The Hobbit and then The Lord of the Rings. Um, now, you could say that's completely ridiculous. That has nothing to do with reality. It's just a fantasy of a bored Oxford dawn, right? However, it's it's turned, um, I don't know, how many hundreds of thousands of young people into lifelong readers. You could say the same thing about Harry Potter and Muggles. You could say the same thing about Star Wars. It's very interesting. Um, NASA scientists often say that Star Wars is what really got them interested in becoming um, an expert in outer space, right? So what we don't want to do is to starve our students of a really rich um, repertoire of possibilities for feeding their imaginations. Now in the United States, one thing that you, you probably could not do, or I would consider it to be a huge misstep, would be to tell a classroom full of African-American youth that you shouldn't have dreams because the I have a dream speech is one of the three most important documents, I would say, in the whole history of the United States. So if you take away that capacity to dream, doesn't life become rather stale and, and boring quickly? And isn't part of what we love in our young people the most is that they can reignite our imaginations so that when we are becoming predictable, routinized, um, unimaginative, all of a sudden we're in the presence of a child who is absolutely mesmerized by a row of ants 
feeding on a crumb. Remember how, um, it, it is still a fascinating thing. How do these ants manage to lift crumbs that are so much bigger than them? And what do they do with them? These are simple everyday parts of life that are nothing short of miraculous. And we, we damage our young people and we limit ourselves when we say, oh no, we, we can't do that. We just have to do the serious stuff. And, and you know, magic isn't all about happy dragons. Exactly. So uh, I was hiking last week and as my hiking partner and I were coming down the trail, there were two people probably in their 20s or early 30s coming up the other way. And I just heard one snatch of conversation. And it was, so what would you do in a zombie apocalypse? <laughs> and and that, that is also imagine it, but it's a fascinating question for, for lots of people. And in part that's for its own sake, but it's also through science fiction. And by the way, my first fiction book I ever read was The Hobbit followed by Lord of the Rings. Oh, wow, I, I didn't know uh, that. And I don't think we ever knew that no. about each other, no. actually. So <laughs> it's a yes. bit, little bit weird. And um, they... But, but through The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, there are some classic narratives in science fiction. You know, the narratives of the, the humble nobody who lives in a complacent Greenland that is threatened by an unknown danger that they do not see coming, and is called into leadership, even though they don't want to be, and has to go on a long journey and quest to save their people and has to find people to do that with them and these people are not all the same they're different they're quite diverse and you have to learn to work with them and overcome obstacles and barriers and enemies in fact so through science fiction we we also learn some of the great narratives of great narratives of life that that exist in real life so magic can be very serious and, and it can also be good for its own sake. I totally agree. Um, I also uh, uh, have a hunch about magic and math. Mm. Oh. Because uh, there, were, there might be some realists out there saying that magic is fine when you talk about films and stories and storytelling, but here we deal with the facts. Well... That's a very limited perspective on mathematics now, isn't it? Because um, a lot of the pleasure that mathematicians enjoy is solving very complex problems and discovering new ones. Um, th there's a famous story in mathematics um, that there was a French mathematician. Have you heard of Fermat's theorem? Fermat was a French mathematician who was working on a very complex problem. And he, he left a little bit of marginalia in a book. And he said, I have finally solved this problem and here is how I did it. But he only provides the beginning of the solution, okay? So it took centuries. Now within our lifetime, something like 20 years ago, the problem was finally hmm. solved by a mathematician at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. But the interesting story you can look this up online. I'm trying to remember the name of the German mathematician. Von Mann, I don't know, but you could find it under Fermat's last theorem. He decided that his life was over. It was meaningless. It was just oppressive. It served no purpose at all, this mathematician. But because he was German, forgive me for this little bit of a stereotype, he liked to do things very methodically. So he decided that he would kill himself at midnight. But it was only three in the afternoon. So what was he going to do with the intervening times? 
He thought about going for a walk, didn't want to do that. Thought, you know, maybe read a book. No, but here's this math problem. Let's, let's see what I can do with this. And so he, he got the math problem out and he started working on it this way and started trying to solve it this way and then came back around and tried to address it this way and crossed that out, went back to this way and then thought he made some progress this way. And then the sun came up. Hmm. And he realized that he was so immersed in the magic He'd forgotten of to mathematics. Kill he had forgotten to kill himself. Yeah. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay? Yeah. So, so we, we can look it up because there's different interpretations of this out there. But isn't that a wonderful story? And, and if that sounds a bit lofty, to, it's a brilliant story, but if it sounds a bit lofty, uh, our work on engagement comes from working with teachers who wanted to engage their students in over 30 schools across five states in the US. And the teachers would meet physically twice a year and then online in between. And they'd meet with teachers like them because they'd be the only teacher in the school of their year level or their subject. So it was great. They could, they could meet teachers of history or other teachers of um, kindergarten. And they got together to devise, to plan, to create engaging materials for their students. And the group that was slowest to do that were the math teachers. They took longer than anybody else. I think probably they thought this was stupid or pointless or why did they have to come to this in the first place. And, and they just don't like to talk as much as other kinds of teachers do quite often. They, other teachers like words. They don't. They like, they're, they're people of few words, typically. And uh, so it, it took them longer. But when they finally got going, uh, one of them thought of the idea of escape boxes. So an, an escape box is like an escape room. And so you put something inside a box that's valuable and interesting, and then you put chains and combination locks. And to unlock each item, you need to solve a mathematical problem. And so, first of all, they got very engaged with this. And then they reported how engaged their students became with this. And uh, after a while, um, amongst oh, well over 200 teachers, uh, one of the teachers of maths stood up. He'd be in his 50s. And the only reason he taught maths was because he had to. He wasn't qualified, but there was nobody else in his tiny school who could teach it. And he said, for years I hated teaching maths. I, I really hated teaching. I, I just didn't enjoy it. And since I've come here to work on these engaging problems with my colleagues that will engage my students, I love teaching now. And, and I'm, a better, I'm a better teacher for my students than the teacher I used to be. Oh, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. What do you think would be the most important thing for us listening to you going home to our schools? What would be the first thing we could try to do to make a change into more engagement? I would say try looking within. So try looking within yourself, try looking within the professional culture in your school. We describe uh, high-stakes testing as an arch enemy of student engagement. So um, is there a way that we can soften the policies in many countries over the last 40 years that made testing such a central 
feature of our schools. So the, the first thing would be to look at what are we doing? Are we, are we partially um, creating some unnecessary enemies of student engagement that we could remove from the dynamics of our school cultures? So if we are honest and, and we look at what we do every day, that, that's a good place to start, but it goes beyond just testing. It kind of goes beyond bureaucracies. It goes beyond cultures of command and obey um, and, and really addresses the whole way that we try to shape a, a learning environment in a school. So what's really great in education, actually, even with policies that we often disagree with, there's often a lot of flexibility in terms of how much we emphasize one part of the curriculum or how much we um, neglect another part. We do have a lot of free play in the system. So I think it's very good for us to look within our own buildings, our own units, our own classes, and kind of see, ooh, I have not been attending to a sense of belonging in my class. You know, in fact, I have students competing against each other all the time, and I give some awards, and others I just say, tough luck. So that's, that creates disengagement for those students who have been left behind. So that kind of just quiet little audit would be part of, of the answer, I think. The second thing would be to read our book as a provocation. Yeah. Read it as a provocation or an invitation and not as a set of recipes. Yeah. So we take great pride in saying, these are the five paths that we found through our research with these teacher colleagues in those five states in the US. But in Norway, your, your enemies of student engagement might be a bit different. In your school, they might be a bit different. So, so don't try and cram your reality into our framework. Instead, use it as a point of departure for developing your own paths. Yeah, I think that's uh, what's so wonderful about your book is that it's not a recipe. It's uh, it's kind of an overview of uh, of, of thoughts and, and paths that we can choose to follow, and that each school, each culture, each identity can can find their own their own way. Could could I say just one point there? Because at one point, uh, Andy and I had written an op-ed for Education Week, and there was a woman named Betty Toomey who was in our Boston College Lynch School of Education. And I ran into her on the way um, out to the parking lot. And she looked at me and she said, Dennis, I've figured you and Andy out at last. And I said, you have? Oh, what did you learn? And she said, you want us to think. <laughs> <laughs> and and that's, I think that's really true. So, so um, it's, of course, wonderful to kind of make proposals and invitations and all of those things. But in the end, we really just have to develop thinking professionals mm -hmm. all, all the time. And um, that goes both ways, right? People that are in school full-time and people that are in universities full-time. Can I just, uh, you mentioned, I think his name is John Meta. Something oh, yes. Like yeah, Joel Meta. Uh, yeah. Uh, where does he work? I listened to his podcast. He got his podcast. Yes, he's at Harvard. He's at Harvard. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he found that the best, the deepest learning or something was in the, uh, not, uh, not in the classes, but in the extracurriculum uh, yes. work. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and that is... <laughs> that is both exciting and depressing. Yeah. <laughs> so it's exciting in the sense that 
not all the most important things we learn go on within the regular school day. And uh, I have uh, three young grandchildren in Canada, two more in Hong Kong. And um, uh, it's it's very important for them and, and for me as as their grandfather or grandy as they call me which is a mixture of granddad and andy so they invented this word <laughs> they invented this word for me called grandy that um that, that they have rich opportunities after school uh, to do things they're passionate about which might be um skiing or or drama or chess for example um and I think one thing we lost during COVID was even when children went back to school, the, the school was a school in the school day, but many of those other things that make life very rich in the school community um, were lost for, for, a, for a very long time. And children's lives were, were poorer be, because of it. So it, it is a good thing that, that schools and children and their educators see this other this other life, and when we remember uh, from our school days what what were the most intense experiences, that they they often weren't in our lessons. They you know there were for me uh, what you know what I did in the theatre group, for example, or the field trips that that, that I went on in geography and the girls I met and, and so <laughs> that that was a little part of it as well, and. Um, uh, so, so that is important, but but it's also sad in a way that it, it's a way of saying that that perhaps the regular curriculum is not engaging enough, and that, that there is more that we can do in science, in maths, in and it's in high school where these problems, challenges become more serious. There's more we can do to to make the learning engaging, and it's not easy. High school teachers see many students. Uh, that, that, that you can't know them all really well like a, like a primary school, an elementary school teacher can. So many things in the structure make it difficult. But, but we should have some kind of goal, that um, a, a sort of minimal goal, that, that every child should come to school every day and, and go home at the end of every day feeling within the regular day there's there was something very positive that they experienced that really connected them to their learning do you have a piece of advice to those teachers who have uh in high school a lot of classes a lot of students don't really know them all we always talk about relationships relationships is the most important thing in schools and if you have a lot of classes a lot of students and not the ability or the time or possibility to to really have a, uh, close relationships with all your students how do you work on on student engagement mm. I, I think that sometimes we have to be careful so i, I my students have difficulties with me when they'll say things like it's all about relationships 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 because it's all it's should be about learning about the world about the universe about the human condition about our fragile endangered planet um, there's many things that should be learned and if we overemphasize relationships we lose out the possibility that we could learn a ton from people that we 
don't necessarily have a great liking for. I had a brutal, brutal eighth grade history teacher. She was one of the teachers who made the four legs of your chair had to be lined up exactly synchronously with the tiles on the floor in both directions. Her name was Mrs. Crouch. I'm not making this up, mm. okay? Not Mrs. Crouch. No, but no. you could slip. <laughs> she was so disciplined. She conveyed so much information. But there was nothing warm and cuddly about her, and I don't know how much she knew about me, but boy, was she serious about history. So it's true that there are many students who are struggling, particularly right now, who really need a teacher or an adult who can listen to them. That is absolutely true. But John Mehta is actually quite adamant about this in the book. He says, you build the relationships through your engagement with mm. the content. Mm. You, you don't do, because we saw this problem in the network, is that some people would say, I'm, I'm really all about relationships. And you could tell, when you went to their classes, they weren't teaching. Yeah. <laughs> you know, So uh, it has to kind of be brought into balance, mm. I think. And I would say the same thing, actually, for student agency or, or, or anything. Um, we have been documenting a rise of narcissism. We just got an email from Howard Gardner in which, in which he talks about how frequently American university mm. students talk about themselves and how dramatically that has gone up. And it's correlated with a rise of anxiety and depression. So if you become morbidly self-obsessed, it doesn't make you happy. You have, there's a whole blooming, beautiful world out there. So engage with that. Yeah, okay, I want to start with the summary. I got these five tips for the teachers. So you can could be like the jury and tell me if this is right or wrong. But if they start um, not giving out too much grades, we have this success at yeah. our school with yeah. uh, having much fewer grades. And then the engagement seems to be better. We only do grades twice a year. Yeah, we do four times a year. <laughs> but uh, we didn't uh, dare to make the quick uh, shift. And if you take um, the interests of the students, if you uh, seek out to find what the interests are, then try to combine it with the curriculum, then, you, then you're uh, on a good way. Uh, next one is to make belonging somehow. He, he, maybe you remember the birthdays and make somebody make a cake, or maybe you just uh, make, uh, on, if they're on a field trip, they take some photos and you just make them have it on the wall. I'm sure teachers are experts yeah. on this much but better. I, but, but, but I'd also, just to add, yeah. some of that takes place through the teaching. So, yeah. so, so we sometimes think belonging is you have teaching over one side yeah. of what you're doing. Yeah. And, and, and then you have people who pay attention to belonging and relationships. And yeah. one of our schools in Ontario had uh, a lot of uh, students who were from families who were refugees from Syria. Uh, so, and they had other students from uh, North Africa as well as the Middle East. And um, uh, one of the routines of the school, this is an elementary school, is they'd have start off with a word of the day. So what's the word of the day? And then everybody would write it down and then they talk about what the word meant and how you would use it in a sentence. And uh, one day 
Uh, the teacher asked uh, one of the refugee children for an Arabic word. And so the, the student gave an Arabic word. And, um, and then they talked about it. And then the other children said, that's a really interesting word. Can we have some more Arabic words? And so they did. So, they, so, it, so the sense of belonging wasn't additional to the curriculum. It, 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 was in the, it, it wasn't written down or prescribed in the curriculum. It, it was in the curriculum because the teacher was a responsive teacher to the diversity of cultures within her class. Yeah, great. And I, I just jump to the next uh, conclusion I have made during the day. Uh, you have to involve the students. In uh, Norway, we got this movement called uh, Samskaping, made by Alan Delin and Mariana Jones. Co-creating. Uh, Co-creation, yeah. So I guess uh, Scandinavian countries are pretty good at work, like oh, involving right. workers, but in schools, uh, for some reason, they are not uh, oh, that, that's not that good. But um, just listen to the episode of Samskaping, and uh, all of that, akkurat som Bergen kommun gjør. Um, and the last one is uh, to keep focus. Um, that's, uh, that's like just make the students work with something they find meaningful and they really can... Uh, and stick at it. Yeah, yeah, deep learning, even if it's hard. Yeah. And uh, it try to make the curriculum... Uh, suit the thing they want to work with, like Stian på Stien gjorde. That's uh, Kjersti's student. He went to uh, Norway, like the whole of Norway, yeah. on a trip we as a school. We walked on foot from yeah. the south to the north. Oh, we, we, we want to do that. Yeah, <laughs> you should. It takes, it takes from May to October to yeah. do that. And he did it in school, and he got his graduation oh. paper on the on the North Cape. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah he did it as a school project, yeah. and he, I asked him how many steps. I got his uh, step counter. Tried to do twelve thousand steps a day. Mm. He, he did like fifty-five thousand a day. So yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> final <laughs> final question. Yeah. Um, don't you have a song for magic? It's a Magic, 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 mag